Hello, hello, welcome back to Self-Soothation, uh, read by Anna Fintengarvi, that is I. Tonight I will be delivering chapter three of Ian McEwan's Nutshell, and hopefully tonight we will see a bit of a sort of improvement from nights before, and it will be a bit more fluent in execution. So let's get straight right into it and stop faffing about. Chapter 3. Nutshell. Who is this Claude? This fraud who's wormed in between my family and my hopes. I heard it once and took note. The dull-brained yokel. My full prospectors are dimmed. His existence denies my rightful claims to a happy life in the care of both parents unless I devise a plan. He has entranced my mother and banished my father. His interests, his interests can't be mine, he'll crush me. Unless, unless, unless a whisper of a word, ghostly token of altered fate, bleating little iron of hope, it drifts across my thoughts like a floater in the vitreous humour of an eye, mere hope. And Claude, like a floater, is barely real. Not even a colourful chancer, no hint of the smiling rogue. Instead, dull to the point of brilliance, vapid beyond invention, his banality as finely wrought as the arabesques of the Blue Mosque. Here is a man who whistles continually, not songs, but TV jingles, ringtones who brightens a morning with Nokia's mockery of Tarega whose repeated remarks are a witless, thrustless dribble, whose impoverished sentences die like motherless chicks, cheaply fading, who washes his private parts at the basin where my mother washes her face, who knows only clothes and cars, and has told us a hundred times that he would never buy or even drive such or such or a hybrid or a that he only buys his suits in this, no, that Mayfair Street, his shirts at some other and socks from, he can't recall, if only, but no one else ends a sentence on a but. That stale, uncertain voice. My entire life I've endured the twin torments of his whistling and his speaking. I've been spared the sight of him, but that will soon change. In the dim-lit gore of the delivery room, Trudy has decided that he, not my father, will be there. When I emerge to greet him at last, my questions will remain, whatever form he takes, what is my mother doing? What can she want? Has she conjured Claude to illustrate the enigma of the erotic? Not everyone knows what it is to have your father's rival's penis inches from your nose. By this late stage, they should be refraining on my behalf. Courtesy, if not clinical judgment, demands it. I close my eyes, I grip my gums, I brace myself against the uterine walls. This turbulence would shake the wing wings of a Boeing. My mother goads her lover, whips him on with his fair ground shrieks. Wall of death. On each occasion, on every piston stroke, I dread sorry, turning the page, that he'll break through and shaft my soft bone skull and seed my thoughts with his essence, with the teeming cream of his banality, 
Then, brain-damaged, I'll think and speak like him. I'll be the son of Claude. But rather trap me inside a wingless Boeing's mid-Atlantic plunge than book me one more night of his foreplay. Here I am, in the front stools, awkwardly seated upside down. This is a minimal production, bleakly modern, a two-hander. The lights are full on, and here comes Claude. It's himself, not my mother, he intends to undress. He neatly folds his clothes across a chair. His nakedness is as unstartingly as an accountant's suit. He wanders about the bedroom, upstage, downstage, bare-skinned through the soft drizzle of his soliloquy. His aunt's pink birthday soap that he must return to Curzon Street, a mostly forgotten dream he had, the price of diesel, it feels like Tuesday, but it's not. Each brave new topic rises, groaning to its feet, totters, then falls to the next. And my mother? On the bed, between the sheets, partly dressed, wholly attentive, with ready hums and sympathetic nods. Known only to me, under the bedclothes, a forefinger curls of her, her modest clitoral snood and rests, snood and rests a sweet half inch inside her. This finger she gently rocks as she concedes everything and offers up her soul. I assume it's delicious to do so. Yes, she murmurs through her sighs. She too had her doubts at about the soap. Yes, her dreams also are lost to her too soon. She too thinks it's Tuesday. Nothing about diesel, a small mercy. This is getting slightly raunchy now, but continuing. His knees depress the unfaithful mattress that lately held my father. With able thumbs, she hooks her panties clear. Enter Claude. Sometimes he'll call her his mouse, which seems to please her, but no kisses, nothing touched or fondled or murmured or promised, no licks of kindness, no playful daydreams. Only the accelerating creak of the bed, until at last my mother arrives to take her place on the wall of death and begins to scream. You might know this old-fashioned attraction of the funfair. As it turns and accelerates, centrifugal force pins you against the wall while the floor beneath you drops giddily away. Trudy spins faster, her face is a blur of strawberries and cream and a grey smear of Angelica where her eyes once were. She screams louder, then after her final rising, falling shout and shudder, I hear a abrupt, abrupt, strangled grunt. The briefest pause. Exit Claude. The mattress dips again and his voice resumes, now from the bathroom. A reprise of Curzon Street or the day of the week and some cheerful assays on the Nokia theme. One act, three minutes at most. No repeats. Often she joins him in the bathroom and, without touching, they expunge each other from their bodies with absolving hot water. Nothing tender, no fond dozing in a lover's tangled clasp. During this brisk ablution, minds swabbed clean by orgasm, they often turn to plotting, but in the room's tiled echo, against running taps, their words are lost to me. Which is why I know so little of their plan, only that it excites them, lowers their voices, even when they think they're alone. Nor do I know Claude's surname. By profession a property developer, though not as successful as most, the brief and profitable ownership of a tower block in Cardiff was once was one peak of his achievement. 
wealthy, inherited a seven-figure sum, now down, it seems, to his last quarter million. He leaves our house around ten, returns after six. Um, here are two opposing propositions. The first, a firmer personality lurks inside a shell of blandness. To be this insipid is hardly plausible. Someone clever and dark and calculating is hiding in there. As a man, he's a piece of work, a self-constructed device, a tool for hard deception, scheming against Trudy even as he schemes beside her. The second, he's as he appears. The cockle has no morsel, he's as honest a schemer as she, only dimmer. For her part, she'd rather not doubt a man who hurls her over the gates of paradise in under three minutes, whereas I keep an open mind. My hope of discovering more is to wait up all night to catch them in one more disinhibited board, obeyed. Claude's untypical, we can, first cause me to doubt his dullness. Five days have since passed, and nothing. I kick my mother awake, but she won't disturb her lover. Instead, she clamps a podcast lecture to her ears and submits to the wonders of the internet. She listens at random, I've heard it all. Maggot farming, maggot farming in Utah, hiking across the Burren, Hitler's last chance offensive in the Ardennes, Ardennes sexual etiquette among the Yanomami, how Poggio Brecht, Giolini rescued Lucretius from oblivion, the physics of tennis. I stay awake, I listen, I learn. Early this morning, less than an hour before dawn, there was heavier matter than usual. Through my mother's bones I encountered a bad dream in the guise of a formal lecture, the state of the world. An expert in international relations, a reasonable woman with a rich, deep voice advised me that the world was not well. She considered two common states of mind, self-pity and aggression, each one a poor choice for individuals. In combination for groups or nations, a noxious brew that lately intoxicated the Russians and Ukraine as it once had their friends, the Serbs in their part of the world. We were belittled, now we will prove otherwise. Now that the Russian state was the political arm of organised crime, another war in Europe no longer inconceivable. Dust down the tank divisions for Lithuania's southern border for the northern German plain. The same potion inflames the barbaric fringes of Islam. The cup is drained, the same cry goes up. We've been humiliated, we'll be avenged. The lecturer took a dim view of our species, of which psychopaths are a constant fraction, a human constant. Armed struggle, just or not, attracts them. They help to tip local struggles into bigger conflicts. Europe, according to her, in existential crisis, fractious and weak, as varieties of self-loving nationalism sip that same tasty brew. Confusion about values, the bacillus of anti-Semitism incubating, immigrant populations languishing, angry and bored. Elsewhere, everywhere, novel inequalities of wealth, the super-rich, a master race apart. Inequality deployed by states for new forms of brilliant weaponry, by global corporations to dodge taxes, by righteous banks to stuff themselves with Christmas millions. 
China too big to need friends or counsel, cynically probing its neighbour's shores, building islands of tropical sand, planning for the war it knows must come. Muslim-majority countries plagued by religious puritanism, by sexual sickness, by smothered invention. The Middle East a fast breeder for a possible world war. And foe of convenience, the United States, barely the hope of the world, guilty of torture, helpless before its sacred text, conceived in an age of powdered wigs, a constitution as unchangeable as the Quran. Its nervous population obese, fearful, tormented by an articulate anger, contemptuous of governance, murdering sleep with every new handgun. Africa yet to learn democracy's party trick, the peaceful transfer of power. Its children dying, thousands by the week for want of easy things, clean water, mosquito nets, cheap drugs. Uniting and levelling all humanity, the dull old facts of altered climate, vanishing forests, creatures and polar ice. Profitable and poisonous agriculture obliterating biological beauty. Oceans turning to weak acid. Well above the horizon approaching fast, the Uranus tsunami of the burgeoning old cancerous and demented demanding care. And soon, with demographic transition, the reverse. Populations in catastrophic decline. Free speech no longer free, liberal democracy no longer the ob obvious part, port of destiny, robots stealing jobs, liberty in close combat with security, socialism in disgrace, capitalism corrupt, destructive and in disgrace, no alternatives in sight. Quite a, um, this is Anna speaking now, quite an intense podcast she seemed to be listening to there. Quite a lot of coverage. Continuing. In conclusion, she said, fucking finally, these disasters are the work of our twin natures, clever and infantile. We've built a world too complicated and dangerous for our quarrelsome natures to manage. In such hopelessness, the general vote will be for the supernatural. It's dusk in the second age of reason. We were wonderful, but now we are doomed. Twenty minutes. Click. Anxiously, I finger my cord. It serves for worry beads. Wait, I thought. While it lies ahead of me, what's wrong with infantile? I've heard enough of such talks to have learned to summon the counter-arguments. Pessimism is too easy, even delicious, the badge and plume of intellectuals everywhere. It absolves the thinking classes of solutions. We excite ourselves with dark thoughts in plays, poems, novels, movies. And now in commentaries. Why trust this account when humanity has never been so rich, so healthy, so long-lived? When fewer die in wars and childbirth than ever before? And more knowledge, more truth by way of science, was never so available to us all? When tender sympathies for children, animals, alien religions, unknown, distant foreigners swell daily. When hundreds of millions have been raised from wretched subsistence, 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 when in the West even the middling poor recline in armchairs, charmed by music as they steer themselves down smooth highways at four times the speed of a galloping course, 
when smallpox, polio, cholera, measles, high infant mortality, mortality, illiteracy, public executions and routine state torture have been banished from so many countries. Not so long ago, all these curses were everywhere. When solar panels and wind farms and nuclear energy and inventions not yet known will deliver us from the sewage of carbon dioxide and GM crops will save us from the ravages of chemical farming and the poorest from starvation. When the worldwide migration to the cities will return vast tracts of land to wilderness, will lower birth rates and rescue women from ignorant village patriarchs. What of the commonplace miracles that would make a manual labourer the envy of Caesar Augustus? Pain-free destiny, electric light, instant contact with people we love, with the best music the world has known, with the cuisine, cuisine of a dozen cultures. We are bloated with privileges and delights, as well as complaints, and the rest who are not will be soon. As for the Russians, the same was said of Catholic Spain. We expected their armies on our beaches. Like most things, it didn't happen. The matter was settled by some fire ships in a useful storm that drove their fleet around the top of Scotland. We'll always be troubled by how things are. That's how it stands with the difficult gift of consciousness. Just one hymn to the golden world I'm about to possess. In my confinement, I've become a connoisseur of collective dreams. Who knows what's true? I can hardly collect the evidence for myself. Every proposition is matched or cancelled by another... Like everyone else, I'll take what I want, whatever suits me. But these reflections have been distracting me and I've missed the first words of the exchange I've stayed awake to hear. The obeyed. The alarm was minutes from sounding. Claude murmured something. My mother replied, then he spoke again. I come round. I press my ear to the wall. I feel a disturbance in the mattress. The night has been warm. Claude must be sitting up, pulling off the T-shirt he wears to bed. I hear him say he's meeting his brother this afternoon. He's mentioned this brother before. I should have made, paid more attention. But the context has generally bored me. Money, accountants, taxes, debts. Claude says, All his hopes are on this poet he's signing up. Poet. Very few people in this world sign up a poet. I only know of one. His brother. My mother says, Ah, oh, yes, this woman, forgotten her name, writes about owls. Owls? Hot topic is owls. But I should see him tonight. She says slowly, I don't think you should. Not now. Or, I'll, or he'll come round here again. I don't want him bothering you, but... My mother says, nor do I, but this has to be done my way, slowly. There's a silence. Claude takes his phone from the bedside table and preemptively turns off the alarm. Finally, he says, if I lend my brother money, it'll be good cover. But not too much. We won't exactly be getting it back. They laugh. Then Claude and his whistling make for the bathroom. My mother turns on her side and goes back to sleep, and I'm left in the dark to confront the outrageous fact and consider my stupidity. Dun dun dun. Um, so that is chapter three finished. I must apologise because I have not read on this chapter um, 
sometimes I cannot preempt the tone or the context in which things are being said. So, long story short, if you haven't got the gist of what's going on, um, fetus, i.e. narrator, has put two and two and two and two together and realised that Claude's brother, John, is in fact fetus's father, which means that uh, fetus's mother is kind of doing the dirty on her husband with a with his brother kind of peak um but there we go um well yes that is chapter three done i am going to go to sleep and i hope maybe all right let's leave that there don't know what else i'm saying good night <laughs>